This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Joseph Bottom is one of the nation's most widely published and influential essayists. His writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. He's the former literary editor of the Weekly Standard and editor-in-chief of First Things. He holds a Ph.D. in medieval philosophy, his most recent work. And the topic of our conversation today is An Anxious Age, the Post-Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of America. Jody Bottom, welcome to Thinking in Public. Dr. Bottom, in your new book, The Anxious Age, you describe this post-Protestant era, but you really are talking about the fact that uh, it remains resolutely a a spiritual age, even uh, when people believe it to be quite secular. Right. I think one of the mistakes that we make is we think that the, the current elite class of America has fallen into godlessness and uh, anti-spirituality. And there, there are reasons that we think this, of course, because the Christian churches in all of their forms are under attack. There are reasons that we think this because the, the elite class has turned so resolutely against the morality of Christianity. Uh, there are reasons that we think this because, you know, the Christian, Christianity is suffering. But I wanted to look at the elite class of America, uh, in, you know, among other things, with sympathy and ask, how do they see themselves? And I realized that, in fact, they're profoundly spiritual that we make a mistake when we try and say uh, you can't live your life without some kind of spirituality, without some reference to uh, the superior morality and the truths of the universe. For, in fact, these people do live their lives in that way. They are the inheritance, uh, the inheritors of uh, generations of mainline Protestantism in this country. They are from the same class, and they occupy the same space that mainline Protestantism once occupied in this country. They just stripped Jesus out of it. And along the way, they see themselves as morally good and engaged in a high spiritual project, however much they would shy from words that express them. You know, when I was reading your book, which I just uh, enjoyed uh, extremely, you know, I I was struck at several points by the fact that someone could make almost the opposite argument and end up in the same point. That uh, if you're using certain of the definitions of secularization, you are actually affirming that that's exactly what happened, the evacuation of theological claims of their theological content and the, and, uh, the, the transformation of religion into something that is all this worldly rather than in any sense otherworldly. But you really have kind of turned that on its head to say that if, if you, and you do write, by the way, very sympathetically of the elites, they're, they're, they're still very spiritual, and uh, they have now transformed that spirituality, directed it into very wow. different channels. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's exactly right. I think they, uh, this is one of the reasons that the kind of Chestertonian argument that so many of our friends uh, Professor Muller, you know, love uh, this kind of you can't uh, atheism contradicts itself, you know, and we need to uh, point out the, the the ways in which that whole modern project is coming undone. It has no purchase on these people. It has no purchase on them 
because they don't actually think of themselves in that way. Uh, they think of themselves as occupying a morally and spiritually superior place. In one uh, point of the book, I say they, they participate in the great unspeakable thought that it is somehow more Christian not to be a Christian. Well, you know, you cite, as a matter of fact, uh, some folks who speak of uh, the adversary class and uh, others who do that in terms of class analysis. And uh, there is a a very clear theological opposition to historic uh, truth claims of Christianity. But as you're saying, many of the structures of Christian thought in in terms of of morality and uh, and, and even certain spiritual expressions uh, just find themselves... Uh, in this class, uh, the class you call the poster children, uh, redefined in, in very secular and, and, and moralistic terms in that sense. We've been trying to explain uh, the elite class in America for a considerable time now. This, has been, this was the project, after all, of James Burnham. This was the project of Daniel Bell. This was the project of Christopher Lash. Many people have gone back to look at... Uh, uh, the Yugoslavian communist who uh, explained the ways in which um, the the class creates new uh, property values in its own uh, possession of the superior offices of culture, and you know this, so we've gone around and around and around this question of the elite class in America for a long time. Uh, theorists have, sociological theorists, because it's a fascinating question. And my own analysis is that these people are who they have always been. They're the great-grandchildren, the grandchildren, and the great-grandchildren of the Episcopalians. Indeed. They occupy the same moral space in their minds. Uh, Peter Berger, the great sociologist of religion, and many other things, uh, he once had a joke back in the 60s that went, uh, Jews, Puerto Ricans, and Episcopalians each are about 2% of the population. Guess which one of these does not think of itself as a minority? And the joke was that the Episcopalians, for even though they were quite small, considered themselves the elite center of the culture. Uh, and they and had the reason tone, to. I beg your pardon? They had reason to. Right. You know, I, I, I point out in the book uh, that the Episcopalian Church, the Anglican form of Christianity in America, uh, has a possession of an architectural deposit uh, that's probably unrivaled by any other organization in this country. I mean, they have gorgeous churches and property, because uh, it's where the money was. But at the same time, I see that tone in our elite class, whether they come from directly from Protestantism or not, whether they're post-church Protestants or post-mass Catholics or post-synagogue Jews, they come to occupy this space that's very high Episcopalian in tone. You know, I, I thought of another book as I was reading your book, uh, another book I greatly enjoyed recently, and that's Greg Herkin's book, The Georgetown Set, uh, about the Alsop brothers, the subtitles Friends uh-huh. and Rivals in Cold War Washington. You read that, and, and that picture of uh, the 1940s, 50s, and, and even the, the 60s in America, and everyone 
basically, that uh, that anyone new uh, in these uh, circles seemed to be Episcopalian, with the odd Catholic intellectual thrown in, and uh, 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 you know, just a smattering of others. But the Episcopalians were the Brahmin class. There's just no doubt about it. There was a moment. There, there's a letter uh, from a man I find fascinating, although oh, I think he's faded a little bit from American historical imagination. And this is Bishop Pike, the Episcopalian Bishop of California in the 1960s. And he wrote a letter. He was born a Catholic or baptized a Catholic as a child. Um, he's a lawyer in working for the government in Washington, D.C., uh, when he converts to Episcopalianism, uh, goes to uh, uh, seminary and just emerges as a star. His rise is meteoric. Thereafter, he becomes very quickly becomes dean of the Cathedral of Saint John the Divine in New York, and then Bishop of California. Uh, and he writes a letter in the 1940s to his mother young lawyer in uh, Washington, D.C., and he says to her, everyone in our social class here is an Episcopalian. And he tells her that in explanation of why he's going to convert from Catholicism to Episcopalianism. You know, I, I really appreciated you citing that letter and pointing back to Bishop Pike, because many people who look at the uh, the theological radicalism of the Episcopal Church, or ICUSA, uh, as it's known today, uh, you have to be reminded that back in the 50s and 60s, they had bishops who already announced they didn't believe in God, not to mention uh, uh, John E.T. Robinson in uh, in Great Britain. So, yeah, I, I got that. And let me tell you, I really appreciated the way you drew in uh, people like John Foster Dulles, you know, pointing out that the future Secretary of State and the father of a, a cardinal uh, of the Roman Catholic Church, as he became, uh, was also the defense attorney for Harry Emerson Fosdick uh, in his heresy trial, which, I mean, it just goes to point out, this was a very small group of very connected, powerful people, but they did have right. one pretty you long know, Avery's argument. Avery's grandfather, his maternal grandfather, uh, founded the American Theological Association. Uh, this, this is, you know, there was a tight-knit world there that included theologians. Yes. Uh, and... Avery's father, uh, Avery was a close friend, and and he, you know, and so I researched all this in a piece I did on him for the Atlantic. Avery's father first came to public notice as a specialist, as something other than just a powerful New York lawyer, but as a specialist in foreign policy. Yes, when he chaired the Federal Council of Churches Peace Commission, investigating Japan's invasion of Manchuria before World War II. Uh, well, and, and so he was closely tied to that old world of American blue bloods who were deeply and profoundly Protestant. The change, that I argue, that happened, happened primarily because of the social gospel movement, and it happened primarily through, not because of, but through the thinking of Rauschenbusch. Now, that's exactly where I want to go. In a few moments, I want to come back to uh, Cardinal Dulles. Uh, whom I had the opportunity to uh, to know, and I, I, I just I want to come back to Walter Rauschenbusch, whom I did not have the opportunity to know, who was uh, dead long before I was born. But I can just tell you, uh, as a Baptist, that uh, you're one of the very few people I know who tells the story of Rauschenbusch so well, and, and even more importantly, understands that 
that Rauschenbusch set the stage for almost everything we're talking about uh, in terms of uh, of the contemporary shape of mainline Protestantism. And uh, you 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 frankly tell the story brilliantly. How did you how did you come to the conclusion that Rauschenbusch was at the center of that story? I really did come to that conclusion, didn't I? That's not where I started out, uh, President Baller. I, I, I'm not sure, you know, what I had in mind. But by the end of researching this and thinking about it, I came to the conclusion that he was the most consequential public intellectual we've had in the last 150 years. He just dominates that stage. Now, I will say he's an inferior thinker. He's a B-class thinker. I mean, William James is the genius in that generation, not Rauschenbusch. Uh, but Gertrude Himmelfarb, the great Victorian historian, has this line in which she says, if you want to understand an age, you should always go to its second-tier thinkers. Because its first-tier thinkers see the problems before they arrive, and they sidestep in ways that you don't appreciate. Its second-tier thinkers don't see the problems of the age until they bop them in the nose. Mm. And it's a brilliant line. And Rauschenbusch is a second-tier thinker. He's a great rhetorician. I've fallen in love with his prose. But, you know, he's not William James. Uh, he's not the genius of the age. He's not William James in the United States. He's not, to take, to take a slightly earlier figure, uh, John Henry Newman in England. And he's not Nietzsche in Europe. He, he doesn't stand at that level of thinker. But he's a great rhetorician, and he feels the age. He writes in one letter that the age burns in his bones. Uh, it's just, as I said, I fall in love with his rhetoric. He's a great writer. And I came to see that you could interpret every move, every moral move, every ethical move, that the elite class names now, or understands now, themselves as superior for holding. You could trace every one of those back to a theme in Rauschenbusch. And when I came across one of his later descriptions of, uh, socio of, um, of the social gospel movement, I realized he actually put forward a list that named every one of those, that the great sins of the age are militarism, the madness of the mob, yes. Uh, the bigotry, and he goes through and he names these, and I realized this, this list, if you could just strip out Jesus, this is the list of social superiorities by which the elite class in America clay, today claims the moral authority to rule. Well, you pointed out that these uh, these new poster children of the post-Protestant age, uh, following Rauschenbusch, uh, basically accepted his understanding of social reality and his redefinition of sin, but they stripped out even Rauschenbusch's uh, rather liberal understanding of Jesus. They, they, it, it's the social well, gospel yeah, without I Jesus. I think you, you're uniquely positioned to appreciate this. Um, they, Rauschenbusch inherited, had a very strange father, uh, who was quite brilliant. You know, I mean, this was a very intellectual family. But the father was very peculiar, and the mother was little, you know, little saner. Uh, and uh, the Rauschenbusch inherited a Christianity that was robust, self-confident, Bible-reading, church-intending, and very, very sure of itself. And so he could play with uh, basic concepts, basic you know, root 
stuff. He could reach down into the real core of the religion and manipulate it and play with it in the sure and certain confidence that every Sunday his congregation would be in the pews. Yes. That they would hear echoes of biblical language uh, and feel the relation with historic Christianity, that he could do wild and wondrous things and still have his people with him. Of course, he wouldn't have their grandchildren with him. They'd stop going to church. They'd stop reading the Bible. But you know, he came out of such a sure and confident place that he thought it would be easy to play with these concepts, and easy it was. Unfortunately, his play created a world in which you didn't need Jesus anymore. You know, I, I did catch this great moral teacher who uh, revealed for us, suffered on his body the the social sins. You see how Rauschenbusch himself really is a Christian. Christ suffered on his body the, the social sins of the world. We could see them in his flesh. And then he's resurrected, and he teaches us all that these are sins, and that we rise to a new moral place, aiming at, in the, one of his signature phrases, the kingdom that is always but coming. Uh, and yes. we rise to that place when we see that these are social sins uh, that have been visited upon him. And all you needed to do after that was strip out Jesus. In the book, I offer this metaphor. I said, for Rauschenbusch, Jesus is like this ladder by which we climb to a new and higher ledge. And once there, you don't need the ladder anymore. You know, I did catch what you did there. I, I think some others might not. Uh, when you spoke of, uh, of Walter Rauschenbusch carrying his congregation but not his grandchildren, you meant that a bit more literally than people may, or, or specifically, I should say, than, than people understood, because one of his grandsons was Richard Rorty, uh, the, uh, the, the philosopher who did explicitly oppose every single supernatural claim and said that, that these claims are actually impossible intellectually to make. They're not just wrong. They're, they, he, he argued they were impossible. Now, I mean, Rorty is the great atheistical philosopher of that generation, uh, you know, of you know, my father's generation, uh, and, uh, and he's literally Walter Rauschenbusch's grandson. Early in the book, I was speaking about the Reverend Spence, who was a, you know, really heroic and wonderful uh, Methodist circuit writer in Iowa, a little bit in Colorado back in the teens and 20s. Uh, and his son uh, turned out to be a writer, uh, Hartzell Spence, named after the, the great old uh, Methodist Bishop of Canada. And uh, Hartzell Spence turned out to be a writer, and in the 40s and early 50s, he wrote a pair of bestsellers, uh, childhood memoirs about his own childhood and his father, that were bestsellers in America called uh, Get Thee Behind Me and One Foot in Heaven. And they're really wonderful, sweet books. But the picture he presents of the Christianity has descended in one generation from this very specific, uh, forceful, strong, certain Wesleyanism of the father to the writer's son generic Christianism of, you know, we all kind of believe the same thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, we don't, we don't intrude our faith into religion, but we're confident because we really are the center of America. And I asked this question, I said, what, 
what odds would you give that the grandchildren of the, that writer, Hartzell Spence, are, are Methodists? Indeed. Uh, or Christians in any sense uh, right, that, exactly. that you could trace back to the grandfather and great-grandfather. You, you mentioned Walter Rauschenbusch, and again, I, I think you tell his story better than I've yet seen it told. But you also get to the, 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 the ur-thinker, so to speak, even behind in one sense, and, and, and that's William James. And, uh, you, you know, William James, I believe, is the most influential philosopher in American history. I, I think people channel him, so to speak, today in ways they don't even have a clue but how did you come to, to understand uh, the Jamesian role in the midst of, uh, of this great transformation? Well, James is, as you say, the, the you know, most influential thinker of the 19th century in, in every way that one wants to measure it, except in the direct social consequence, where I think Rauschenbusch surpasses him. But James is, I, I say he, you know, in American philosophy... Um, he occupies this position of coming first. Uh, he's, the, he's the first American philosopher of any consequence, you know, pure philosopher. Now, and he's the first American thinker to be recognized as, as a first-rate thinker in his field since Jonathan Edwards. Um, but uh, in terms of his historical position, he actually occupies the place of coming last. He's the last person who can stand on the shoulders of the Boston Puritans with confidence and security that the kind of founding impulse uh, that brought everyone to America is still in full force. A single generation later, you have, out of that Brahmin class, you have T.S. Eliot, who's very, very much not confident yes. about civilization and his place in it. But James is only one generation older, and he's, he's full of this confidence and certainty. And that's what allows him to put forward this kind of pragmatism in which he says, uh, <coughs> excuse me, in which he says, you know, if we're going to be pragmatic, we have a kind of great corridor theory in which there are all these rooms that occupy or that, that live on the edges of, of the great corridor that we walk down. And any one of them is coherent, and you can live in it. And you should live in it. And that's the great broad-shouldered American version of pragmatism. A single generation later, and the, the thing he never foresaw will have taken place, which is America's moral imagination will say it's immoral to choose any room. You have to live in the great corridor where you are non-judgmental about all the rooms. Indeed, uh, and so and you have you have William James, who, uh, who who, as you pointed out, is is probably less immediately uh, impactful in terms of American thinking than uh, some of his colleagues in the so-called metaphysical club. But, but he sets the stage for the demise of his own class in one sense, or at least represents that. And this quarter theory, you know, I, 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 I know he uses the metaphor, but you really play it to a, an amplified role, which I think is very helpful. Eventually, as you say, uh, William James takes you into the quarter, says that truth is just a quarter. You go whichever quarter you, you follow whichever corridor is, is yours and has cash value. But as you point out, in the next generation, the doors to the corridor are closed. Right. It's like a hotel corridor, and you can no longer enter any of the rooms. 
You just have to live in the corridor, which is this non-judgmental, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, you know, uh, refusal to say that anything is more moral than anything else, relativism. Right? This is where we get this relativism out of the non-relativist uh, William James. Jody Bottom's reading of the post-Protestant age, I think, takes on particular importance in one sense because he's not a Protestant, because he writes as a Roman Catholic. And he's in a position, as both an historian and an intellectual, to look at the current situation in America and, and just see how Protestant it is in terms of its enduring patterns of thought. We'll get back to that in just a moment, in terms of how those patterns of thought continue in this now post-Protestant age. But we also need to turn to the second half of his book, which deals more with the public significance and the fate of Catholicism in the modern age. You know, in your book, and, and I, I enjoyed the first part uh, very, very much, especially when you deal with the, uh, the poster children of the post-Protestant age, as you call them. But the second part, uh, you know, frankly, uh, follows right upon it. And I, I, I found your reading of American Catholicism to be, uh, frankly, bracing. And uh, a, a couple of things I wanted to ask you about uh, in terms of your treatment of Catholicism. You point out, and, and by the way, as an evangelical thinker, I, I just want to— I want to affirm what you said, and that is that there's been a huge dependence in terms of American public uh, theology on, uh, on, on the patterns of Catholic thinking that were quite systematically available when, uh, when evangelicals did not have that kind of a system. That There is an incredible lure to that system. I, uh, a few years ago, I spoke, Al, at a... Uh, um, Evangelical College. It was one of the first Catholics that they had ever had in. And uh, <clears throat> at the dinner afterwards, the president of the college says to me, with his twinkle in his eye, you know, one quarter of our incoming freshman class were baptized Catholics, and they'd become evangelicals. And uh, one of the faculty members at the dinner looks up and he says, well, you know, because, of course, no college president can get away with anything nowadays, right? Uh, one of the faculty members looks up and he says, well, that's right, Bill, but you should also tell him that eight out of our last ten valedictorians have converted to Catholicism upon graduation. And for a long time, Al, that was the picture we yeah. had, that... All of these kind of suburban Catholics, you knew exactly who these kids were, that they had, you know, been, they went to church on Christmas and Easter, they'd been baptized, but basically that was the sum total of their exposure to Catholicism. And the first time they actually heard the name of Jesus was at an evangelical soccer league, and where they encountered people who took Christ seriously, and they drifted into evangelicalism from that end. And at the same time, the sort of low end of the, the least Christianized Catholics. At the same time, we have this picture which said the most intellectual kids, the kids who are most morally serious about the intellectual life, are leaving the evangelical churches for Catholicism. 
so that Catholic was taking Catholicism was was losing on the low end its least Christianized kids, and gaining at the high end its most intellectual kids out of evangelicalism. For a long time, Al, I'm not saying that that picture is fair, but I'm saying for a long time it is the picture that we had. Well, and I think uh, I can I, I I can get back to to, uh, to your point by saying that. One of the problems that evangelicals have to face squarely is, uh, is is the fact that we did not have an adequate public theology, an adequate understanding of how to speak uh, of Christian truth claims in the public square in the way that Catholics, given their natural law pattern of thinking, were far more prepared right. to do. And, uh, and so, you know, it, it, let's put it this way. A lot of evangelicals who would never swim the Tiber— and 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 join the Roman Catholic Church ha- have been using arguments that I would say aren't as Catholic as you might as you might have indicated in the sense that it was Catholics who got there from the Christian tradition, if you'll forgive my uh, my slight modification in a systematic way and in a Catholic unique uh, way of asserting magisterial authority uh, that uh, that frankly there's still a dependence upon you know and and you point right. out that there when is. You, I mean yeah. I think the the rediscovery of Kuiper the Dutch yes. politician and theologian, uh, is, is uniquely significant. Uh, he was nearly forgotten uh, and then brought back and rediscovered, and I think he's really seriously significant for reminding people that Calvinism in particular has deep resources for this kind of thing. Still, my argument is in, there, in that second half of the book in which in the first half of the book I look at Protestantism in America, and the second half of the book I look at Catholicism. And my, my essential argument here is not, in the second half, is not theological. I'm not claiming that Catholicism is theologically superior or inferior or, or in any way comparing the theologies. I'm describing the historical fact that in the 19, late 1980s, early 19, and through the 1990s and into the 2000s, uh, the collapse of the mainline Protestant churches opened this hole in American public life, this moral you know, vacuum. And the two largest groups of Christians who had always been kept on the outside were sucked in to fill the hole. And they were on the one side, the Catholics, and on the other side, the Bible-believing evangelical churches. And they met there, and a kind of ecumenism of the trenches developed, in which you know, the main line, the dying main line, became the center of anti-Catholicism. The number of evangelicals who were openly anti-Catholic declined in massive amounts. And the, the Catholics who had never really even considered the evangelicals before, who thought that their enemies were the mainline Protestants, were forced to kind of encounter these evangelicals. And projects that I belonged to in those days, because we all believed it, uh, like evangelicals and Catholics together, were arranged to, to see this possibility of whether some kind of new combination of Catholics and evangelicals could fill the hole supply the missing leg to the American experiment that the mainline Protestants used to provide. Well, and you had someone who demonstrates your pattern, uh, the uh, the former Lutheran, uh, uh, come uh, major Catholic intellectual, Richard John Newhouse. And, uh, you know, and Richard and I yeah. were very close. I mean, baptized my daughter, and, wow. you know, I mean, we were, we were enormously close. And Al, I was at all those meetings. 
That's... I was the young guy sitting in, you know, with his mouth shut because Richard told me to. But uh, you know, <laughs> Richard was also a domineering figure. Uh, but uh, you know, this was Chuck Colson, and this was Avery Dulles, and this was Richard Land out of the who was kind of uh, what the Marxists would have called party theoretician out of the Southern Baptist Convention. These were major figures. Avery was there, uh, and they were all struggling with theological questions to find ways in which evangelicals and Catholics could live together and work together to provide the new moral center of America, the missing leg of the yes. American Protestant, or the American experiment in freedom that the mainline Protestants had previously provided. We failed yeah. in that project. Well, th- I really want to follow up on that, that uh, just a bit, and and you do. And let me say that uh, my my guess is that we may well have met in some of those meetings because I was in uh, in some of them too. And 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 I did not have uh, enduring uh, opportunities to uh, talk with uh, uh, Avery Cardinal Dulles, but it was at one of those meetings where I sat next to him and. Uh, and, 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 you know, frankly, as a doctoral student in theological method and historical theology, I had read so much of his work and his models of revelation and, and, and uh, his understanding of dogma. And, and you really helped uh, in this book, I think, to crystallize something that I've never seen anyone else quite get to. And, and, and that is that, uh, that a good many people, and Avery uh, Dulles was a convert to Catholicism himself, even kind of a traitor from his class in that era, but... Uh, they were drawn to the system of thinking, to the intellectual edifice of Catholicism before they were drawn, we might say, to the Church itself. Is that fair to say? Avery is, now remember, he converted in the 30s. His, his conversion is the same era as uh, Thomas Merton's, whose conversion is told in the, you know, the best-selling book, The Seven-Story Mountain. This is a 1930s experience of conversion to Catholicism. And Al, never was there a class so converted by uh, the sheer intellectual power. Uh, it's, in this way, it's reminiscent of the Oxford movement, yes. of the conversions of the 1840s. In the 1840s, Newman is very, very clearly sees that he's converted from something beautiful and, and coherent and lovely to something that's ugly and a mess. But he's converted to it because he sees it intellectually as necessary, that the Anglicanism of his own age is incoherent. Uh, in the conversions of the 1890s, you know, this is the Oscar Wilde aesthete era of conversions. They think they're converting to something beautiful. In the conversions of the 1930s, we've returned to this very strange conversion out of intellectual conviction. In Testimonial to Grace, his conversion book, the the book in which he tells the story of his own conversion, Avery essentially says he went to Harvard, he began to study philosophy, he realized that medieval philosophy, specifically Thomas Aquinas, makes much more sense of the world. He then sees that, just in, as an intellectual matter, if he's going to accept the philosophy, he has to accept the theology, and so he converts to Catholicism. And it's so insanely, wonderfully, beautifully, peculiarly intellectualized, in a way that, you know, that uh, an a model evangelical conversion which says have a change of heart and come to Jesus can barely begin to comprehend the strange path by which Avery tells the story of his arriving at Christ. 
uh, it almost as though it was kind of a decision that one made based on weighing the intellectual factors and so on. It's wonderful and peculiar and typical, I think, of a set of of conversions that happen in what I call the JP2 generation, yeah. the generation that's brought up under John Paul. It's also not unrelated, Al, to the point I made earlier about our picture of evangelicals grabbing the lowest level of Catholics while Catholics were gather, grabbing the highest level of evangelical. Because the, the, what the Church was offering, what the Catholic Church was offering in those days, was intellectual coherence. Oh, that proof. that that is certainly true, and you cite so many of the authorities who are are uh, are friends, people <laughs> like uh, Robert George at Princeton, and uh, and 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 you can't really talk about uh, the 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 Christian world's engagement with uh, with the issues of the day without pointing to the kinds of uh, of influence uh, issued by uh, very prominent Roman Catholics like Newhouse and uh, and also uh, Robert George. But when we get to Cardinal Dulles, I need to ask you a question straightforwardly. Here's one of the things that has always kind of confused me, and, and that is you have someone like Avery Dulles who is certainly, in the Roman Catholic context, a, uh, a, a defender of Catholic orthodoxy in, in his own way, and yet he appears, as you say, even co-presiding with, uh, with very liberal Protestants. How, how exactly does that work? It, it, it has always been a confusion to me. Well, Avery was... I mean, God rest his soul, and he was a wonderful person. Uh, and, you know, we were—my my daughter, my little daughter, was so enormously close to him, just madly in love with him. He gave her her first communion, and, you know, so I feel this—to hear every challenge is to feel rising within me this urge to defend him against any charge. Sure. And yet, Avery was first and foremost a churchman in a very old-fashioned sense that we forget once existed. Uh, and, but one of the best ways, I think, then to understand him is he spent his whole life, after he reach, reached his maturity, uh, he spent his whole theological career defending Vatican II, defending its orthodoxy. And for the first 20 years after Vatican II, into the 1980s, that made him look like a raging liberal, because what he was basically trying to do was explain how radically new and liberal Vatican II was to a generation of older Catholics who were very conservative in their faith. The second 20 years of his professional career after Vatican II, from 1980 till his death around 2000 and so, uh, was spent trying to explain the conservatism of Vatican II to the essentially liberal generation that had risen up to replace it, replace that old conservative one. That's why he seemed to be such a liberal in the 70s and such a raging conservative in the 1990s. Yeah. But always what was at the center of his thought was the orthodoxy of the Second Vatican Council. I want to update, Jody, if I may, to your argument, and uh, I drew a lot of attention back in December of 2014 uh, to what I consider still to be maybe the most important magazine essay of the year, which is your cover story in the Weekly Standard entitled The Spiritual Shape of Political Ideas. And uh, in that article, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're a good deal more, uh, uh, well, clear about how this spiritual energy has been transformed into political advocacy. I'd love to hear you talk about that for a moment, because 
I think there are a lot of people who read that article, and it was like a light bulb going on saying that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, I got a sense after I published the book uh, last summer, I got the sense last spring, I got the sense that uh, that I'd left unclear. People were uh, still unsure of what I meant when I said that the modern liberal elite class is still in the, its formal structure of its thought, Protestant Christians. Uh, and so I sat down and I tried to, last fall, and I tried to give three examples of ways in which the formal shape of Christian ideas perdures in these, this elite class if you strip out Christ from it. And I gave the example of original sin, for instance, where I said, if you look at the idea which was much brooded over the uh, summer and fall of white privilege, you can see that it has the exact shape of original sin. It's an inherited fault, but it's original sin without Jesus. Uh, and I looked in a similar way at shunning in the ways that it now appears. One of the ideas that I uh, explore in that article, The Spiritual Shape of Political Ideas, is really quite mischievous. It's the idea of the apocalypse. And I point out that the radical survivalists on the right and the radical environmentalists on the left share an idea that somehow the apocalypse is coming. It's just the old Christian idea of the apocalypse with Christ stripped out of it. And it, but it has the same formal shape, and it provides them the same kind of moral certainties that previous generations had had. And, and also, when you, when you make the point, and, and again, I think it just might w- well be the most important magazine article of 2014, you, you make the point that with this kind of doctrinal ardor comes a certain form of, uh, of moral fanaticism, which explains why people who seemingly lack any theology still have a very theological sense of, uh, of fervor. Yeah, there's, you know, there's this pattern in Protestant Christianity, let's think of Catholic Christianity too, there's this pattern in Christianity of a kind of fanaticism of, you know, it's, it's there in uh, Francis, you know, throwing off his cloak and embracing the leper, it's there in George Fox kicking off his shoes and saying, the streets of minor British cities are the Holy Land. It's there in uh, denunciations thundered from American pulpits. It's there deep in our psyches. And one of the things I notice in people espousing white guilt, or yeah, white guilt, for instance, this guiltiness of white privilege, um, is that they have that same fanatical tone. This is a failure on the part of Christian churches, the Protestant and Catholic alike, that we've offered these people no outlet for their moral outrage. A magazine sent me to cover the Occupy Wall Street movement when it was at its peak, and I never got the article written now, because uh, I couldn't understand where these kids were coming from. But over the years, it became clear to me that they were the levelers and the diggers out of you know 17th century England or 18th century England. They were this group of people outraged, literally morally outraged, uh, that the world lies in sin. 
and it's an apocalyptic movement that calls to God to come undo this world. And if you don't recognize that as a real mode in which Christianity can express itself, then we don't understand where these kids are coming from. And indeed, in which human nature can express itself. The world lies in sin, you know, opining. And still, and we know what's wrong. These kids would say, what's wrong is that there's, you know, misdistribution of money. I mean, it's a kind of craziness, but it's also deeply, deeply related to this human hunger to say, why is God allowing this to go on? Absolutely. Yeah. I thank you so much for your analysis here, but I, I want to ask you to uh, to prognosticate a bit. I mean, it, it, that's the one thing that uh, that I was kind of left hanging with in both the book and the article, and, and I'm almost afraid to ask, but uh, what do you think comes next? Mm. I don't know, Al. I mean, I, the the book, in many ways, was as neutral as I could make it. It's an attempt to say, this is where we are. Uh, and I don't know, you know, I'm not going to make a judgment about where we're going. I, I have a cover story coming out in a week or two in Books and Culture uh, on the novel, the history mm-hmm. of the novel as an art form which says that it was an essentially Protestant art form uh, that came out of 18th century England and shaped its birth there, shaped the way the novel itself exists, or, you know, would come to exist. And it was designed to solve a particularly Protestant problem of, of the self. Uh, and as mainline Protestantism falters across the world, what's happened to the novel? But that's more exact, you know, and I, I'm very proud of this piece in certain ways. Uh, but uh, it's more of what you're describing, which is I'm analyzing the problem without offering a solution. I have in mind a book of, of mysticism. Um, and I, my agent, we finished a little bit of it, and my agent is out shopping it now. It's where I think we need to go. We need to remystify the world and understand kind of a natural mysticism and a creation of this world or a a sense of this world as created so we can understand once again what it is that Christ so we can understand again the question that Christ is the answer to so where we're going to go I think is exactly there I hope that in a very convoluted way my new book on mysticism is going to be my answer to the, the problem described by an anxious age. But it may be purely idiosyncratic. I don't see an immediate rebirth of Christianity. The evangelical move moment is over. Evangelicalism right now is a force in decline, sociologically speaking. Uh, Catholicism yes. is under major attack. I don't see an immediate rebirth of either of them. N- nor do uh, I. I don't see the, nor their do destruction I. either. Yeah. But, you know, I don't see them reemerging. This is why I say in the second half of the book, the Catholic thing, or the Catholic half of the book, that evangelicals and Catholics together project is something that we lost. Well, the reason I asked the question the way I did is because uh, you mentioned T.S. Eliot more than once. Uh, I, I think of him very often, uh, especially when I, I think of the future, because as, as he warns, uh, both in his poetry and his prose, uh, in an age like ours when the passion is spent, 
a, a massive, horrifying uh, anti-humanism can can step in, and uh, and and that's that that that's what I fear is that uh, it, it, when you, when you have the apocalyptic beliefs of the of the these poster children of the post-Protestant age, as you call it, when you have their understanding of original sin, and and when you have them pushing these urgencies as they are, when when that disappears, I I, I think it could be a very frightening prospect of what's left. Yeah, I think you're you're a little more dour than I am, Al. Uh, you know, I have great confidence in the sort of basic good sense and get alongness of America, uh, but uh, it could easily turn in that direction. Uh, you know, there you get things like um, Cardinal George of Chicago saying he expects to end his career as a public churchman in jail. Uh, you, you get a feeling that, you know, persecution is waiting just around the corner. Uh, I have, as I say, g- greater confidence in the basic good sense of America that will prevent that. But there is no doubt that the kind of faith which was the Protestant faith, which was the, the a founding element of the American experiment and a, one of the major producers of American exceptionalism, has simply collapsed. Uh, as a public force with the with the disappearance of the mainline churches and you know that opens up dozens of new possibilities uh, in a way that we could have never imagined for this country before but I think that points to one thing in your book you're so candid about and 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 that's why for instance when I speak of of I, I did have uh, a crisis of religious liberty in the background of my thinking but in the foreground of my thinking in that assertion was, that you have these uh, these post Protestants who, uh, who who I think could very easily abandon any of the Christian tradition on on human dignity, and you're so candid in your book about the function of the issue of abortion. I mean, as the great moral dividing line. I mean, you you really do underline that. I yeah. I mean, this is I spent my career as a public intellectual fighting abortion. You know, I mean, this was always a motivating. Uh, factor for me. This is why I didn't drift off into doing literary criticism much as I love it. Or my own training is actually in medieval philosophy. That's what my doctorate's in. Uh, and I, but I didn't feel like I could be a scholar because they're killing babies. Uh, I'm, you know, Al, I'm the, the mythical one-issue voter. I'd vote for yeah. a communist dog catcher if he were more pro-life than his opponent. Uh, but the, the fact remains that <clears throat> if you if you can't see the human uh, in the baby, then all kinds of new possibilities that we would never have imagined before open up, and they are all horrifying. Uh, and I, this is where I think we can draw a line in the sand, uh, morally speaking, but also we can see a great intellectual divide between those who still feel the, you know, the human as real and morally particular, and those for whom it's all become vague and manipulable and plastic and changeable. Uh, and, you know, I, here I stand. I'll stand on, on the side of those who see the human here as particular and unique uh, and the center of moral discourse.
I really enjoyed that conversation with Jody Bottom. And one of the reasons why I enjoyed the conversation is because I already feel like I've had a conversation with him many times over through his writings. Dr. Bottom is just a brilliant writer. I uh, would not want to miss anything that he writes. And I feel like every time I read one of his essays or one of his books, I'm already engaging in a conversation with him. I tend to write in the books I'm reading anyway, and I can promise you that my copy of his writings, those copies are, are thoroughly marked up. And, of course, one of the reasons why I enjoyed the conversation with Jody Bottom is because I think this new book, An Anxious Age, is a particularly important book. I I think he really gets at what many people miss in terms of the contours of the thinking of our now very anxious age. And the way he tells the story is particularly important. He tells the story of the fact that what we have is an enduring pattern of spirituality and of thinking that owes its architecture to Protestantism, but doesn't owe any of its content, at least in terms of the theological content, to the central claims of Protestant Christianity. Quite honestly, his prose is just stellar. It's crystalline when it comes to describing the current situation. He writes things like this, Through the long centuries after the Middle Ages, the combination of liberal Protestantism and scientific materialism slowly drained Western civilization of its metaphysical density. Devils, specters, elves, magic, all fading away. And of course, what he documents is also that theism itself, in terms of the classical Christian understanding of God and of Christianity, well, that too has simply faded away in what he describes as the Western cultures losing their metaphysical density. And as an evangelical, I also think it's really, really important that as he traces this de-theologizing, this secularizing from within in terms of Protestant Christianity and the eventual result in this post-Protestant age, he goes back to a philosopher like William James. As I said in the conversation, I think most Americans, and most particularly American evangelicals, fail to understand how echoes of William James continue to be heard virtually everywhere in our culture. The inherent pragmatism of James. And when people hear pragmatism, they they generally think of it wrongly, because in James's understanding of pragmatism, it means that truth is only found in an idea if the idea works in the sense of having cash value. He didn't believe in anything like an objective truth and what we might consider to be a correspondence of moral reality to our moral claim. Instead, he spoke of truth as, in his words, quote, what happens to an idea, end quote. It, it really is, I think, key to understanding our current age to, uh, to understand that a lot of the people around us, many if not most in certain circles, actually believe, just like James said, that truth is what happens to an idea. It's not objectively or independently true because it corresponds to a reality, much less a supernatural reality. And I think it's brilliant how he goes back to Walter Rauschenbusch. And quite honestly, he tells the story better than almost anyone else I've ever read has told it. He gets to the essence of what Walter Rauschenbusch was about. And he understands that the eventual impact of the social gospel was that it didn't leave much for Jesus to do. If anything, it's not a work of atonement that's really called for. Instead, what you have is an understanding of Christianity that is transformed into its social effect. And and Bottom is very clear here when he points to the fact that for Walter Rauschenbusch, sin wasn't an act. Sin was rather a system of structures. Jody Bottom is particularly helpful in pointing to the class issues at stake here in terms of the fact that there was an Episcopalian class, as he describes kind of the Anglican tradition in America, that really did dominate, dominate intellectually, dominate institutionally, dominate in terms of leadership, 
A look back at the historical record will show the imbalance whereby a group that represented only a very small percentage of Americans by membership, certainly in the 20th century and beyond, was represented in the corridors of power. For instance, in, uh, in institutions such as the United States Senate, all out of proportion to those numbers. And as you look to the waning of that, uh, that Protestant class of Episcopalians, well, you also understand that what came before it was the waning of a theological tradition, the waning of theological conviction that came long before the waning of the class. As a matter of fact, that class did continue. I mentioned in the conversation, you know, the fact that connecting the dots is really, really important uh, in order to get to someone like the Episcopalian Titan and the, the, the leader of the ecumenical movement, even though many people forget that, John Foster Dulles, perhaps the most famous and, and memorable Secretary of State of the uh, middle decades of the 20th century. It was John Foster Dulles who was the defense attorney for Harry Emerson Fosdick in terms of his, of his heresy trial in the early decades of the 20th century. And uh, that just, to me, is a perfect parable, a perfect illustration of the fact that this class uh, sold out its theology before it was in turn sold out in terms of its status uh, and its influence in society. I mentioned near the end of our conversation that cover story in the Weekly Standard, and I really appreciated uh, Dr. Bottom describing the fact that he wrote that kind of after reflecting after the publication of the book on, uh, on, on what might not have been so specific in his argument, and that is the transformation of doctrinal energy in this new uh, post-Protestant age and uh, in the intellectual elites uh, and, and those who more generally kind of find themselves or think themselves on what they call the right side of history. Uh, in a way that actually follows the architecture of Protestant theology. And, and I would commend that, uh, that essay to you. Again, it's called The Spiritual Shape of Political Ideas, and he points out that a lot of the very supposedly secular arguments that are being made, even, e- even in, in a way that is intended to be in direct contradiction to Christianity, that these are made with a doctrinal fervor following an architecture of Protestant theology, such as an understanding of original sin. You know, every worldview has to answer that question, and a lot of the people who are protesting uh, out there in terms of what they consider to be secular movements are actually arguing that the original sin, well, it isn't going to be something as defined in the Scripture, but it's something that's going to be defined in terms of political oppression or, uh, or economic injustice. And he also points to the apocalypticism. Every worldview has to uh, has to explain where things are going. And uh, when you hear some of the extreme ecologists and others uh, as as they give their apocalyptic warnings, uh, it sounds very much like the architecture, intellectually speaking, of uh, of the cartoonish figure who's uh, who's standing at the street corner with the sandwich board that says "Repent for the end is at hand." Speaking of some of these modern worldviews and the political fervor behind them, in that essay, Doctor Bottom wrote that uh, what he sees is uh, the shape of a Christian worldview. Listen to these words carefully. Quote, or at least what a Christian worldview would be if it lacked any role for the gospel, end quote. So in one sense, we arrive in the, uh, the second decade of the 20th century where we were in the early decades of the 20th century with the social gospel movement. Uh, there are very clear echoes of the same kind of logic, the architecture intellectually of the same kind of argument, and the presence all too clearly the same kind of fervor. Another very important part of the conversation with Dr. Bottom had to do with contemporary Catholicism and the fate of Catholicism in the 20th century, and and that is a brilliant section of his book as well. And there he's writing as a Catholic, not as a Protestant. Now, again, I found most interesting where he writes of Protestantism as a Catholic. And uh, as a, a Protestant, a confessional Protestant, as an evangelical reading the second half of his book, 
there were a lot of dots that were connected, and uh, a lot of things I knew I came to a deeper resonance and understanding of because of the way he tells the story of Catholicism in the 20th century. And uh, I know and have known and have met many of the figures that he cites and uh, and know some of them as friends today. And, and, and this is where, as an evangelical, I want to come back and say that uh, there is no or should be no reluctance on the part of today's evangelicals to admit a, uh, a certain undeniable dependence upon uh, the intellectual traditions and the intellectual arguments that were put forth largely by Roman Catholic intellectuals in the 20th century, when facing such issues as the culture of death, as uh, Pope John Paul II called it, when facing issues like abortion and euthanasia, when, uh, when looking at the defense of marriage in terms of the public square, there is no doubt that evangelicals have been appropriating natural law arguments, or arguments that are rightly classified as natural law arguments, uh, those arguments largely having been hammered out uh, centuries before, and especially in terms of the contemporary context uh, in, in the decades of the 20th century, by very seminal Roman Catholic thinkers. And again, there should be no reluctance to admit that, in the same way that morally we need to admit that evangelicals showed up on the lines of the pro-life movement in historical terms, largely after Roman Catholics had already been there. And Dr. Bottom also spoke of efforts such as evangelicals and Catholics together, interestingly calling that a failed project, which I think is historically accurate. Not to say that there were no political gains and that there was no cultural traction at all to it, but to say it did not, as was intended and hoped by those who, who framed and signed those documents, a, a cultural reset of a, of a return to uh, an understanding of the dignity and sanctity of human life and the, the dignity of marriage that had been hoped for. And uh, in terms of those uh, ECT documents, I did not sign them, uh, even as I was a part of some of those conversations, uh, simply because uh, there was a mixture of terms uh, with which I, as a confessional Protestant, uh, just could not be at peace. But that we can state too much and we can state too little. And, and one of my intellectual fears is not stating honestly that there has been an appropriation of many of those natural law arguments. Uh, and, and yet one of the things I wanted to say as I was speaking to Dr. Bottom is the fact that in in making those arguments, I don't believe that evangelicals uh, should understand that simply as uh, as appropriating arguments uh, that that were made by others, but understanding that that there is a form of very legitimate Protestant argument uh, that follows the very same lines of understanding what it means for God to have created the world as he did, and to have declared it good, and to have made it for his pleasure and his glory— and then understanding in, in terms of, uh, of an argument that we even find in the New Testament itself. Uh, for instance, in Romans chapter 1, in, uh, in understanding how to defend those very things, uh, we go right back to creation, something that we've learned over and over again. And so even as a confessional Protestant, I want to be very clear, uh, what I think we're actually talking about here is a very long line of, of Christian intellectual effort and, uh, and, and of doctrinal conversation and of the affirmation of, uh, of certain very deep biblical truths uh, that, uh, that we are reappropriating in a different time and in a different context. But there's more to it than that, and there, that is where I simply must conclude. I am indeed a confessing Protestant. And uh, as I often think to myself, more Protestant by the day. For even as I stand back with respect for so many very honest and, uh, and frankly, brilliant Catholic thinkers who have contributed so much to the conversation— I realize, just with every passing day, indeed sometimes it seems with almost every passing hour, uh, how dependent I, I believe the Church is, the believing confessing churches at the end, 
on nothing but the authority of Scripture. That, that is, I have never been more committed to sola scriptura as well as, of course, justification by faith alone and the rest of the, uh, of the hallmarks of confessional Protestantism than when I understand that in this increasingly anxious age, there is no form of argument, including natural law argument, that is truly compelling to, to a secular mind that is committed to the very passions of what Jody Bottom describes as this anxious age. Confessing Protestantism is left with the scandal of sola scriptura. It, it is indeed a scandal in the modern age. It's a scandal even to many who, uh, who looking into confessional Protestantism, say, you certainly must have more than that. And at the end of the day, this is why I come back again and again to the fact that I think you're going to see over and over again that those who will find something other than sola scriptura will find some way to make peace with this modern age in a way that I believe will violate Scripture and come fall short of scriptural teaching. And, and that's where I simply have to conclude with a word of great gratitude for Jody Bottom for joining me in this conversation, and I think hearing it, you'll understand why. What, what a generous conversation from someone that has so much to say. But I also want to point out something that we didn't have the opportunity to talk about, and that is that uh, over the last couple of years, Dr. Bottom has also written a defense, what he calls a Catholic defense of same-sex marriage. And I think given the patterns of Catholic argument and, uh, and, and the, the, the resources of the Catholic tradition, there are ways that, that a good number of Catholics are going to get there. I don't believe that those who are committed to the sole authority of Scripture to decide such issues can get there. And that's where the conversation as much as I enjoyed it, again, at the end of the day, makes me, well, honestly, even more confessionally Protestant than ever before. The conversation also explains why I would not miss anything that Jody Bottom writes. That was true before, it's even more true now. Once again, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Joseph Bottom, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.